This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. Polish author Olga Tokarczuk, when not busy, you know, receiving the Nobel Prize in Literature, wrote in her 1998 novel House of Day, House of Night, Your memory creates postcard images, but it doesn't really comprehend the world at all. That's why a landscape is so affected by the mood of the person looking at it. In it, a person sees his own inner transitory moments. Wherever he looks, he sees nothing but himself. Well, geez, Louise. Doc, meet Olga. Olga, meet our pal Doc. Yet there is no avoiding time. The narrator sort of liege muses at the end of Inherent Vice. The sea of time. The sea of memory and forgetfulness. The years of promise gone and unrecoverable. Of the land almost allowed to claim its better destiny, only to have that claim jumped by evildoers known all too well and taken instead and held hostage to the future we must live in now forever. Inherent Vice is a film that tricks us into settling in for a noir about a man solving a mystery and instead presents us with a man confronting a melancholy truth. Everything, lives, eras, loves, comes to an end. The inherent vice of existence, its sole unchanging irony, is that times inevitably, unavoidably, change. And the obvious thing there director Paul Thomas Anderson has noted of the 60s while doing press for this film is that they fucked up and they lost and they let it slip away. But I think deeper than that is that thing Doc has for Shasta. That's something that everybody can get with. The girl I shouldn't be with, but I need to know who's she fucking? Where did she go? What did I do? That was the really heartbreaking thing in the book. How much you can miss someone. So Everyone in this film, having lost a love, they're adrift in these riptides of memory carried out to sea by mirages of a better place to drown in a Fata Morgana of a better time. And after a long stretch of scenes in which the reunion of the family Harlingen has established itself as the not-so-impenetrable plot and soul of Inherent Vice, like an inescapable chorus you can't stop humming throughout the day, we return now to the Ballad of Doc and Shasta Fay. And before we talk about the film's most famous non-comedic scene in the next episode, in which Doc and Shasta run down a street beneath a blanket of rain and Neil Young, we're here today to talk about a sequence that is often forgotten in the face of that more popular scene's shadow. And yet, it is today's melancholy moment that fuels so much of the meaning in that marquee sequence. All of which is to say, that is one of the reasons why I wanted today's guest for this episode. As editor-in-chief of the website Daily Grindhouse, it is this man's job to traffic in the cult films that lurk in the shadow of larger, more widely popular cinema. It's his job to notice the unnoticed, to notice the smaller, the weirder, the sadder, the stranger. And today's scene falls into all of the above criteria. And so, 
that is why I am here talking to John Abrams, editor-in-chief of Daily Grindhouse. Hello. Hi. Welcome to the show. <laughs> it's good to be here. It's great to be here. There's a lot going on in the world. It's great to be uh, it's great to be talking about movies. Well, I'm very glad to have you here today because like I said, I feel like this is such a meaningful a meaningful tiny little stretch of the film that no one thinks about because when you remember this this little bit, all you think of, I think, is Doc and Shasta running in the rain. You hear you think of Neil Young and the neon lights and oh the board sure did its work that day. Right. But this is this is I think this is an important beat and I think it's an unnoticed beat. And I think that's kind of a lot of what you do in a way is you you look at these unnoticed little moments or these entirely unnoticed films or unappreciated films. So I need you here today. I need you to save this scene for me. Awesome. Yeah. So I gotta, no, I, yeah. Well, well, go ahead. Let's, well, I have, uh, I have a, let's, let's kick this off. I want to know what defines, and this is going to, this is that, that annoyingly broad question that I'm sure you've, you've seen and written about a billion times, but what defines a cult film to you? Can it be, a what is this a 20 million dollar studio film released by warner brothers written and directed by one of if not the greatest american director alive based on a book by one of if not the greatest living american authors starring one of if not the greatest active american actor plus about 50 others Mm -hmm. can you can you call that a cult film I, yeah, I'm, I, I've done like a lot of reading on this movie since uh, since we talked about me coming on here. And it's so frequently described that way. And it's it's kind of shocking to me. I mean, it's it's great. Um, it's understandable, I guess, because it's not uh, I don't know if you could ever call it a mainstream movie. But you seem dubious. Um, you have a look of consternation on your face. Like, oh, is that, does that have to be something like an American hippie in Israel to be a cult movie? Like Inherent Vice just doesn't. <laughs> doesn't get yeah. a fall in that pantheon yeah i don't think it has to be that that you know off off the the wall i guess it's a you know cult movie can be something that kind of fell by the wayside that people didn't appreciate as much and maybe that's true about this one because i mean i think when people think of paul thomas anderson they think of boogie nights you know um it's the same way that you know with scorsese they might think of goodfellas you know there's so much there's so much riches in that filmography but um kind of the quote unquote mainstream kind of gravitates to certain movies and uh, maybe this isn't one that that they would go to I guess um, it's very I mean it's it's a it's a tough movie to follow um, I I actually went I went back to my uh, my little notes about when I initially saw the movie back mm-hmm. in uh, I guess 2015 and um, the trailers that they showed, I just the culture of our like American cinema just it goes to show like they showed a trailer for um, the what's it the wedding ringer which is like I think it was <laughs> Josh Gad and Kevin Hart and Kaylee Cuoco from the Big Bang Theory I think romantic comedy right and then if that wasn't enough they showed a trailer for Mordecai I don't even know how to say Mordecai a true uh, cult film, a right, real cult right. film. But you know what I mean? Like, like our our American cinema doesn't really like right now in this world um, doesn't have 
a place necessarily for Paul Thomas Anderson films, particularly like the way that he's in the direction he's been going, I think is a little more esoteric than, you know, he's not on like a, a Boogie Nights trajectory, like kind of a, 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 a critical um, hit that is, you know, an awards thing. Like he, I think he still gets talked about and as far as Oscar conversations and all that. And clearly like some of the most, well-known actors in the world want to work with them they're lining up which uh you know as as it should be but you know this isn't a movie that like i think of like i think of like movie people like me and you and everybody else that's been a guest on this podcast you know like the the real diehards and then i think of like the normal people <laughs> like um, <laughs> the normals yeah like a lot yeah. of you know what i mean like they're like like we flip over stuff like this but the the normals are watching you know very different stuff and um it's just i mean it's it's only changed it's only gone further like now we're pretty dominated by superhero stuff and i know that paul thomas anderson is on the record saying like he actually he enjoys that stuff he's not you know in his mind he's not diametrically opposed to that but um i guess long story short yeah i mean this isn't this isn't a mainstream movie so i guess you'd have to kind of say i mean i don't know if it's binary either cult or mainstream but it's certainly not damn it john let me be reductive and have an either right. or here come yeah. on come on well, I, yeah <laughs> I, I mean yeah it's not it's, how it's dare not... you how dare you approach your answer with nuance how Sorry. dare you this is 2020 we don't have time for that i've been inside a long time got nothing to do, but... <laughs> oh no <laughs> a single tear rolled down john's face as he said that to me <laughs> Well, I guess that's true. Although, I, yeah, I was reading an uh, an article, an interview rather, with Catherine Waterston recently from the the press cycle for Inherent Vice, and the interviewer said something that actually I thought was pretty interesting. He said that if Inherent Inherent Vice, you think I would remember the name of the movie at this point, <laughs> if Inherent Vice had dropped in 1970, it would have immediately been re relegated to showings at drive-ins and art houses only, mm. and. And that, that struck me because I was like, yeah, I can't imagine a film like this playing then. Or if it did, it would get the kind of uh, the long goodbye release where it plays for like a week in New York and L.A. They try to give it another poster to give it some attention and it still just disappears, just utterly disappears. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you, because like movies like like kind of quote unquote equivalent movies like the long goodbye, I actually don't have the research on like how they did but that was what i was going to ask you like the that's... long goodbye oh boy long goodbye um it's funny uh the studio thought the poster would fix everything mm. but you know altman releases a chandler adaptation and it had a very mad magazine uh, it had it actually had, it was a mad magazine artist who designed the poster and you know those those great old-fashioned uh, the the old mad magazine magazine movie yeah. parodies where the opening splash panel would just be every guy and yeah. gal in the movie going hi i'm you know and there'd be like a satirical twist of the character's name and i do this and this and this and the poster was yeah. that it was just all the characters doing that and it, it bombed Davis, yeah, yeah it, it might have been yeah. And so premieres like New York, L.A. does absolutely terrible box office. And the mm. critics were like, I can't understand a word anyone is saying in this movie. It's all the, the cinematography is all flashed out and blinding. Basically all the things we love about it now. Yeah. So, the, so studio pulls it and then they release a different poster 
of a very square-jawed Elliot Gould holding a pistol in the poster, like holding it like he's James Bond, like in License <laughs> to Kill or something like that. And somehow seeing uh, Elliot Gould, you know, being a swinging dick like that on a poster did not save the film, and it did rather poorly, and it, it disappeared really, really quickly. And I think it was one of those, like a lot of Altman flicks, it was one of those where people came back to it. But yeah, at the time, it completely bombed. It, it, it basically suffered the same fate as Inherent Vice. Mm, wow, okay, yeah. That's, now, uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's sad. But hey, you know what? You know what? Maybe someday someone will come along and do a podcast about the long goodbye, and then it will have all been worth it. It'll have all been <laughs> worth it. Altman will, Altman will nod from up above going, finally, this is what I did it for. This is what I did it for. So some nerd could sit in the studio... <laughs> And, and annoy the shit out of 45 different guests to get them to talk about this movie. Every One day. film finds its podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes, every film finds its podcast. Yes, in 2020. Oh, God. So, you were you're you're talking about, you know, when you're looking over your notes from when you saw it, uh, when it went wide in 2015, what did you think when you saw this? Like, were you were you jarred from how, because you, you, were, you were also talking about you know, the trailers you saw attached to it, which Jesus Christ, what a, what a series of trailers. What a, what a, what a eye jarring hell to have to sit through to get to inherent vice. But once yeah. you got through that, once you made it through that drudgery, yeah. had you seen the inherent vice trailers and were you shocked when the movie wasn't as, as, as kind of Lebowski esque and comic as the trailers made it out to be? Um, I guess I probably, I wasn't necessarily surprised uh because i i i I mean we could go like an hour on paul thomas anderson and comedy i think it's like i think a lot of his movies some of them are very like overtly comedic i think Mm -hmm. boogie nights is an example where it's got a ton of you know it's got a ton of you know super cinematic and big actor moments but it's also got some really broad comedy um, and he kind of moved away from that in a way, but I do think like some of his movies are low key, extremely funny. Like mm-hmm. there will be blood, you know, I think people are coming around on that too. And, um, also like just over the, like the affinity that he has for comic actors. I mean, obviously my Rudolph is a huge example, you know, but like <laughs> right from the beginning, like Adam Sandler and, yeah. um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised that his movies are funny, but I, I, I don't think I was I don't think I could have possibly expected what this was. I think right away I knew it was good. I felt that it was uh, smarter than me, <laughs> <laughs> which I still feel that way. Having seen it a few more times, you know, um, uh, it absolutely is. But uh, yeah, no, I, I, I knew it was good. And I think I wrote at the time. I was like, that's, that's how that movie was as good as it needed to be to wipe those trailers out of my mind. Oh my God. <laughs> Wow, this whole, this is going to end up just being about the the horror of mid to mid twenty uh, 2010s uh, trailers. I, so I apologize to Josh Gad and Kevin Hart and Johnny Depp, but not at all. Actually, I don't apologize to those guys. They shouldn't have done those movies. Um. <laughs> <laughs> the, the opinions expressed today on Increment Vice do not ref, do not reflect those of no. the creators and or producers, or even Daily Grindhouse. This was just me. <laughs> 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 so, <laughs> So, uh, are, what is your relationship with noir? We're going into this. Are you are you a noir guy? Is that is that something that rings your bell? So, or did a lot of this? Yeah. 
I'm assuming that yeah. the, this didn't, you know, strike you poorly. No, the, the detective I, angle. No, um, I'm like, uh, I don't, not that I think anybody has any perception of me at all as any kind of public uh, personality, but I think like if anybody like, you know, reads me on Twitter or whatever, I'm always talking about goofy horror movies and. Um, you know, as far as 70s movies go, uh, you know, I'm big into Clint Eastwood and Pam Greer and Burt Reynolds and um, like uh, Bronson, like, you know, kind of more um, shoot, shoot, you know, revenge kind of action <laughs> movies. Um, but I do you like it as shoot, shoot, <laughs> shoot, shoot. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to this. That's one of those things when you're on a podcast and like you listen back to it when it comes out and you're like, I wish I hadn't said that. And where did that come from? That's oh, what, we're shoot, keeping shoot, that. Oh, shoot, shoot. Yeah, that, keep, that, that, that second yeah. long goodbye poster. That was a very shoot, shoot poster. <laughs> shoot, shoot. There you go. It was a very shoot, shoot poster. Uh, Elliot Gould, uh, Elliot Gould's uh, action hero. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's very shoot, shoot. Um, but yeah, no, I, 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 long story short, I, I love noir. It's like, it's kind of me and my uncle are like, that's kind of our thing. We get together, we watch like, old noir movies the you know the 30s and 40s and 50s um not really 30s their 40s and 50s stuff and um um yeah and i i studied it in college uh as a undergraduate film major so um yeah i've, I've always kind of loved it and i actually think having that background um enhances your enjoyment of some of these like neo-noir like um I have to study increment vice to the level that you have to kind of like really get into like what kind of references it might have to previous noirs. But like, you know, it's most often compared to the Big Lebowski. And um, when I saw the Big Lebowski first in 1998, I was a film major then. And I had just very recently seen Big Sleep for the first time. Mm -hmm. I saw the Big Sleep. And then I saw The Big Lebowski, and, like, I promise you that I enjoyed The Big Lebowski twice as much as I would have because of that. When you see the the references that are in there, like, it's just, um, <laughs> the, you know, in, in Big Sleep, there's a, uh, there's a moment where Bogart uh, is trying to find out what somebody wrote on a pad, and he does the, the whole trick <laughs> with the pencil, does. right? <laughs> and he does that, yeah. and he gets, like, the, I forget what it is, it's an address or something. And then you watch The Big Lebowski, and it's Jackie Treehorn, you know, writing something down, and the dude goes over and runs his pencil, and it's a dick. And uh, it's just like, the, the Coens do sit like that. Like, they, like, they yes and with, like, the most amazing, like, kind of dick jokes. But they're, <laughs> you know, they're, ref like, Burn After Reading is full of that stuff, too. Like, it's, like, references to previous movies. If you know the previous movies, you know? Yeah. The normal people say, why do you watch old movies? Why do you watch black and white movies? Well, like, that's one reason. Like, you'll get the jokes that these guys are making. Like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, it's just like, you yeah. know, Altman made the long goodbye so that I could someday do a podcast about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, uh, <laughs> and then, you know, all these directors like John Houston, they made these movies so that the Big Lebowski's dick jokes could exist. <laughs> that's exactly jokes, why. Know, You've man. cracked the code, man. Yeah, it's like it's, but you know what I mean. It's like it's funny. It's it's like, it's a it's a vernacular. It's a vocabulary. Yeah, and you have to, you know, you you've got to learn the the basic words before you can really sing and speak the language and and yeah. sing in a it's singing a dick joke. Right, and uh, right. speaking of dick jokes, have you read? <laughs> had you read Inherit Vice the book? No. Before or after having seen the film? 
No, uh, since since we talked about me coming on here, I read the first chapter of the uh, of of Inherent Vice. Mm-hmm. I never read I never read the Pinchon before. And, well, um, as PTA yeah. himself has said, it is some of the best, most lyrical, insightful, mind-bogglingly dense and brilliant prose mixed with the funniest dick and fart jokes that you'll ever <laughs> yeah. ever read. <laughs> Yeah, it's like that. That usually, like a lot of times, my favorite filmmakers like turn me on to stuff. So that's one of those I always wanted to get get around to. But I don't know if I have the strength. Those are kind of heavy books, you know. <laughs> you gotta... Well, that's the thing. That's that's one of the in a weird way. That's what why I I always suggest, and I don't just suggest it because I'm clearly unbalanced and obsessed with the story and these characters. But the reason why when I talk pension with people and they ask, you know, should where should I start? I don't want to start with Gravity's Rainbow. It's a doorstop. I always tell them start with uh, start with inherent vice because because yeah it's complicated and complex like all pensions work is but it's also got a breeziness to it because he's attaching his style onto a a very kind of breezy very intentionally formulaic structure because he's he's making he's taking the detective story he's taking right. the the Chandler slash Hammett detective story, and he's hanging his ideas upon it. And so if you know a thing or three about the basic uh, building blocks of a detective novel, it allows you easier access. It allows you to grasp the story, I think, a little bit better when you read his novel. And it allows you to digest his linguistic uh, forays a little bit more easily because you're able to still go, okay, I can get what's going on. This is the detective thing where there's like a million concurrent plots, but it's all one big plot. It's all the same plot. We're going to learn that it's all the same thing eventually. And I think that that's what makes that book so accessible. And yet, oddly enough, it made for what was, for a lot of people, a very inaccessible, very impenetrable film, which I still, so much of this series of this show has been me pointing at this thing pointing at that thing i wonder if this is the reason why is this why people don't like the movie is this one because i and there's there's actually one today that i'm going to bring up with you that that happens in this very scene i i i still have the hardest time sometimes just i want to grab people and go what did you not love about this movie what turned you off was it just because no particular plot lines were obviously earmarked as the big main plot were you confused because we swerved into Harlingen yeah. country for a while after Shasta Faye introduced right. us to this world. Is that it? But yeah, if, if that's, I'm already going on a digression here, I'm getting angry, <laughs> but again, I would say if you are curious about pension, uh, inherent vice is the way to go. It's easy. It's breezy. It's real. It's, it's actually quite short for him. And you know, if you've seen the film, you essentially have a decent grasp on the plot. To get into the book and go, okay, this is confusing, but I actually remember this from the movie. This is what's going on. I highly recommend it. And how dare you struck, not stay up yeah. all night and read the book in preparation <laughs> for my show? How dare you? <laughs> how dare uh, you? Well, you? You were struck by what? Yeah. No, I was, I was, I was going to say I was, I was just struck by <laughs> – no, I, I, I wish I could have followed that up with a good one-liner. But um, no, I was, I was going to say I was struck by how, um, how you know – closely uh anderson kept to yeah. you know from what i read of the book like there's so much of that in there and um especially that opening scene yeah 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 it was like the same it was like a direct adaptation um and for you know i've read further on it i obviously haven't read the book but 
um, that there are certain, you know, we know a couple changes he made making a certain character and narrator, you know, like mm. stuff like that, but there weren't, and he took out like a Vegas subplot or something, but yeah, it's a big Vegas subplot yeah. in the second half of the book. But it's really surprising how much he really like kept to it. Yeah. You um, know, he, he even said that he basically, he put the book in one of those, you know, those like cookbook holders where they'll hold the yeah, pages yeah, open yeah. and sit it on your <laughs> counter. He said he literally put the book, the hardback, or uh, he had the galleys and he put them in one of those and page by page adapted the entire novel as a script because he said it was the only way he'd be able to understand the story is if he could see it in a familiar format. So he ado- adopted, he adapted it word for word initially like that yeah. and then just started weeding out you know, the things that were unnecessary, characters that were unnecessary. And in fact, there are so there are times where it hues so closely. That opening scene, particularly, the only thing missing in the film yeah. is that Doc sheepishly gets an erection when Shasta Fay walks into his house at the very <laughs> beginning. Like like in the book, there's a moment he ruefully looks down and he sees and he says and he thinks something like, you know, nothing changes. Yeah. In, a, in a story about how everything changes, apparently the one reliable thing is that uh, you know Doc likes Doc likes Shasta. It's a boner, yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's full <laughs> well, of yeah, that, That's pension. He's gonna open. He's gonna open his book. His his heartbreaking elegy for yeah, the American yeah. soul. He's gonna open it up with a boner. That's pension. <laughs> so if um, that's if that if that rings your bell, I highly recommend the novel and Hair Vice by Thomas Pynchon. It does. It does. It in stores it. now. Well, yeah. it was back when we had stores. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, what was I gonna say? I forget. I was. Just I don't know. Of... I I just got really depressed when I talked about all the stores closing just now. Yeah, so, yeah, I know. Me too. I just I love going into bookstores. That's like my uh, my zen. You know, just walking into bookstores, not coming out with anything necessarily. Yeah, but, which yeah. is appropriate. You know what? That's. That's appropriate for this conversation because this is a heavy episode. This is a sad episode, and it's a, this is an episode about melancholy and nostalgia, and that is so much of what is infused into the spirit of this scene. You know, we're here mm-hmm. to talk about a postcard scene right. in what is really a postcard film. It's a you know, it's a, the film is a beautiful image with something sad written across its back, and. You know, it makes me think of just saying that, you know, just talking about that, just, you know, about sadness and nostalgia. PTA himself has said, you know, this this story that Pynchon was telling was obviously autobiographical and from his generation and from his heart. And the director said, I wanted it to feel like it was from that time to try and make it feel authentic to that era, almost like it was kind of a faded postcard. A picture yeah. you might see of your parents in a drawer that's faded in color a little bit. And I don't know, that 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 to me, that is that is so the mood and the tenor of not just this film, but especially mm-hmm. the sequence we're going to kick off today and is going to carry on over the next uh, two episodes past this one, which is just that sense of things have changed irrev- irrevocably. They've yeah. changed. And what we knew of what we relied upon, what we loved, what we enjoyed, what we took for granted is now just like in a poof. It's just, it's mm-hmm. gone. It's gone. Yeah. And yeah, like, like the Dodo and the bookstore and Shasta Faye Hepworth, they're just, they just, 
the inherent vice of time is that everything changes and everything goes. Absolutely. Boy, we just got real, didn't we? We just yeah, shared a moment. We uh, did. Yeah, we oh, did. boy. We did, didn't we? You and me. Mm. Well, I tell you what me and you are going to do right now is we're going to watch this scene. And Let's we're going to get all sad. We're going to get depressed. We're going to have a good hug digitally. Visually. And, yeah. And we're going to talk about it. you could see these waves it's one more of these places a voice from somewhere else tells you you have to be remember that day with the Ouija board I miss those days I miss you Nothing was supposed to happen this way, Doc. I'm so sorry. You don't remember the Ouija board, do you, Doc? So, what is two short paragraphs in the book, just two slim little paragraphs, becomes a brooding cinematic LG about loneliness and loss that makes up this scene. And... Once again, I am struck by the sourness and the anger that powers Pynchon's words in the book. How Shasta's phrase in her in her postcard, nothing was supposed to happen this way, Doc, I'm so sorry, is followed up by Doc musing, maybe she was, then again, maybe not. But that's not the case here in the film version. As has come up many times before on the show, and especially on the last episode with crime novelist William Boyle, in the film, it is only PTA's warmth and empathy and humanity that shines through here. And it breaks my heart every single time hearing her read this postcard. Every single time. <laughs> Uh-oh, another tear. Another lonely tear rolling down John's face. <laughs> I'm not a crier, but you can you can imagine uh, <laughs> kind of guys. Little, he's he's yeah. he's you don't have to be a tough guy. You, come on, yeah, you know, he's he's saying that now, everyone. But he's I, I believe me, he's feeling it. He's feeling it. All right, here's what I want you to do, John. I want you to strap in. Mm-hmm. I want you to strap okay. in because I am going to give you a double barrel blast of my pretentiousness. All right. Okay. Okay. Sure. Before we get too deep in the weeds with the bulk of this whole sequence, I want to talk a little bit about how it starts. There's this funny little bit of Doc 
crunching his car into one of those impossible little Manhattan Beach garages. Well, Gordita Beach in the film. But one of those impossible to park in Manhattan Beach garages. And he's got KHJ playing in the background. Shout out to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Followed by this ruminative little bit in which he stares off into the distance at the ocean. These two boys go by. And maybe I always wonder if they're the same two boys from the opening scene of the film. And he slowly makes his way up the stairs. Now, you've seen a movie or three. When you're a filmmaker and you're working with a longer film like this one, a two hours plus film like this one, I think I would think that most filmmakers and editors would be trying to keep things relatively tight. Cut weight, keep it trim. And with a film that's already two and a half hours, mm-hmm. it, it, it really struck me for PTA to just let these plotless, seemingly plotless beats of this moment take up so much cinematic real estate rather than just getting to Doc finding the postcard. He takes so much time to have this goofy little parking gag, which isn't super hilarious. It's not really necessary. We get that Doc is a goofball and stoned most of the time. And these just the sad, lonely walk to his to his to his bungalow. Like why? Why would we do this? Why would PTA include this if he's trying to keep things a little trim? And it I was thinking about this today, and it made me think of another Catherine Waterston interview. Mm-hmm. And the interviewer said that if he had to sum up the film in a single word, it would be melancholy. And Waterston countered that she couldn't just settle on one word for the film. So she said this instead. There's both hilarity and sorrow in it. And in this moment, we slip pretty quickly from the sight gag hilarity of Doc parking his car and then we take this big deep dive into the sorrow that follows. And I think that's intentional. I think the opening moments of this scene serve as a transition point for us. They ease us out of the Clancy Sherlock sequence and then set up a more melancholic, melancholic tone. But even mm-hmm. further, and I told you, you're getting double barrel blast of the pretension. But ouch. even further, yes, ouch, John. But even further, I think what's being accomplished here is... PTA's just stopping to show us the quiet loneliness of, of Doc's life. At the literal end of the day, after he meets all these colorful characters, PTA is taking valuable time out of his film just to show us that feeling I think we all have known at one point or another. That lonely moment when you come home alone, no one's waiting, and you just amble about your small bits of business. Parking, thinking wistfully, walking up a flight of stairs... And that's why I think the scene opens this way. It gives us this universal sense of lived-in loneliness that is Doc's life. All right, you can unstrap yourself now. Take off that bulletproof vest. <laughs> yeah, no, I was going to say I had the vest for... Uh, I, I absorbed the, the blast of your double barrel. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting that you, you said all that, to be honest with you, because when you said that we were going to be talking about this moment and I watched the scene... Uh, like a couple dozen times and i wrote that literal question in my notes i said why is this moment here um i have some thoughts um well hit me with them globally i think of like paul thomas anderson is like almost like a he's like a cinematic musician Mm. like i kind of hit onto that magnolia is like a you know kind of symphony you know Punch Drunk Love, like like the way that music is such a huge part of his films, but like his whole his whole films are almost like I don't know enough about music to say they're structured like songs, but they 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 hit like songs. They have that kind of 
emotional effect. And I, he's such a meticulous filmmaker. Um, he, like, there's nothing that's in there by accident. So the fact that there is a, a long moment, a relatively long moment of uh, Doc Sportello walking to his apartment at night uh, after parking, like that's, that's if you don't mind, just I'll reach back to the, the scene right before this, like when um, when when uh, Maya Rudolph's character she mentions how Doc and Shasta used to date. Oh yeah. Oh yes. Uh, yeah. Actually, they used to. And, uh, and Sherlock says, uh, "You can only cruise the Boulevard of Regret so far, then you've got to get back on the freeway again, right?" Mm-hmm. And then Great. that mini yeah. Ripperton song kicks up. Maya's right? mom. Yeah, and uh, yeah, there you go. And um, by the way, I think it's like interesting that Paul Thomas Anderson and Maya Rudolph were both like children of heretofore like you know famous showbiz people it's true they are that's 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 i don't know just interesting i like connections like that because like gulardi anyway gulardi is like my my cousins grew up in in uh in cleveland and every time i talk about how much i love paul thomas anderson's movies like my cousin's just like gulardi <laughs> for he those who like, don't know pta's like, old yeah. man he he yeah. played a character gulardi one of those you know late night hosting a horror like a horror double feature on yeah. TV, and it, yeah, that's 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 Goulardi. In case you didn't I, yeah, know, yeah, I'd never heard of him, but he was like a big, you know, he's big, like same way Minnie Ripperton is bigger than she, you know, obviously. Anyway, um, so there, there's that moment, uh, in Doc's office when, like, that kind of kicks off, like maybe he's thinking of Shasta is what I'm trying to say. It Gosh. kind of leads into this, and um. When's he not thinking of Shasta? Well, that's, yeah, accurate. But I just like, you know, just the continuum, like it kind of underlines it for us. Like, remember that. And so um, not only like I I love when songs kind of carry over into the next, like, you know, that's you hear a little like echo the mini Ripperton scene. Yeah. Yeah. I think. And um, and I love a good L.A. parking joke, by the way, because I live in (laughs) L.A. that's a that's a whole thing for me like i lived when i lived out there i lived in silver lake i lived on descanso drive which is like jesus christ you know it i'm sure you uh, had i'm sure you had some fun parking yeah right because like just to describe it to people there there are two lanes one goes uphill one comes downhill in the middle are trees i don't know if they were sycamores or whatever kind of trees but they had very invasive roots that kind of kicked up speed bumps like yeah like very irregular like shitty speed bumps and uh, um, um, you know, made it twice as hard to find parking in LA. So I love a good like LA parking joke. Like, well, yeah, out. you see, you're able to enjoy yeah. the joke now. Yeah. You're able yeah. to enjoy the joke now. See, you see how I'm yeah. stone faced and sad right now. Yeah. It's because it's still not funny to me. It's well, not going to okay. be funny to me till I ever get out. That's right. right? You're there. You're there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm in like I'm just. Kind of... I watch this scene. I'm like, it's not that funny. No. Yeah. Yeah. yeah this isn't this funny. I got to deal with but... this on a daily basis. Yeah, but it's like, but it's what you're. Yeah, exactly. That's part of the. It's <laughs> part of the downside of LA, you know. Um, the, yeah, but, the uh, one downside. That one downside. There's, there's a few. There's a few. <laughs> but, uh, um, but, but yeah, like that's like what you're saying. Like with the the com- like the little comedy, whether or not it's funny, but it's it's part of life. And then, uh, and then you're lot with the loneliness and like I, you know, it's so. Again, so meticulous that you can. Like, I think when he get when he leaves the garage you can hear like a bottle rolling down the hill yeah because he's parked on a hill like this yeah. that's what i'm saying like it's so inconvenient he's parked on a hill and like that <laughs> kind of 
little sound effect just underlines it. The whole thing's like, you know, the hill is cross-secting through the frame at like a 45 degree angle. And then the, the skateboarders come through, which is like, that's another LA thing. Like in my experience of LA, like at, at a certain time of night, you can be really shocked if somebody passes you. It's jarring. Yeah. It's like jarring. It's, right? Because so, you're, you're yeah. so surrounded by noise all yeah. day. And weirdly, you know, for a city of our size, we LA dies like around right. 11 o'clock midnight. LA is just dead. Yes. And yeah. it goes from being a constant roar mm-hmm. to just a hush. And the slightest sound of someone coming up, someone coming up behind you, mm-hmm. it is the most terrifying goddamn thing in the world mm-hmm. or in the city, rather. LA prepared me for quarantine. <laughs> Or being a night owl in L.A. Yeah. I, used to, I was out all night, like, in my L.A. days, and, like, I would come home at, you know, 3 or 4 in the morning, like, and, yeah, just dead, dead. So that's that's kind of how I picture the scene, and that's how it kind of got me into, like, really relating to it even before we get to the point. But, yeah, it's, like, it's very, you know, you, you, you see him walk up the steps the camera kind of trudges like up with it like it's just it's just a lonely guy at at the end of a lonely day and a lonely night and yeah it's it's as like what point could there be in showing us this other than to just show us that like well this is is what yeah this is what i mean about him being meticulous because it's like and then he walks up to the door and there's the postcard it's like the scene in um um you know the 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 sex the sex, the massage I want to say massage parlor or whatever but like you know when he gets like Chick Planet yeah when, yeah cold, Chick Planet when he gets when he gets cold cocked you know mm-hmm. it's kind of like that it's like you walk into a place and you bam you got you just got you got hit you know you just got and and um whatever he was feeling before that moment the second he sees that postcard and figures out who it's from like it you know he's kind of been now now we know what he's thinking about yeah. if we didn't know before. And, exactly, um, and yeah. and it's it's that kind, of, it's that meticulousness, it's that yeah. shoe leather that I love about PTA. That he, yeah. because I think as much as I think, you know, you or I or anybody else, a normal human brain would look at this and go, well, I'll just have him get to the door and and, and get the postcard, and we'll start this flashback. This is I want to yeah. get to the flashback, and it it's he's so right. The reason why he's PTA and the rest of us are the rest of us is because he's like, no, <laughs> this will hit harder. You might not realize why I'm doing this on a mm-hmm. conscious level. You might not get why. Because, again, I've seen this movie a million times, and it wasn't until recently that I was able to have an answer to, why are we just watching Doc fritter away his evening here, just staring into the ocean for, like, a good 10, 15 seconds, which is a lot of real estate in a film, Yeah. when there's nothing else happening. And the, the boys going by, and then, as you said, trudging up the stairs. And yet, I think there is a cumulative accretion yep. of yes. unconscious melancholy and those are a lot of syllables to say by the way i hope everyone's <laughs> proud of me there is an unconscious accretion of of melancholy there and it builds and builds and builds like when you're a kid and you're rubbing your feet on the carpet with socks on because you want to get a good good charge going before you shock yourself on a doorknob and i think that's exactly what it's happening here is there's a if i can continue this awkward metaphor there's the this he's scratching his feet along the stairs so he can get so that PTA can give us a shock when he gets to his yeah. door. And I think that the the narration in the postcard would hit hard either way. But even if we don't realize why we're seeing it, seeing Doc like that and just seeing him not being 
the Looney Tunes cartoon character getting whacked on the back of the head Mm -hmm. or being the goofball that writes something Spanish when he's supposed to remember a Spanish word. (laughs) Seeing him just be the guy that maybe we haven't seen since the opening shot of the film when he's laying on the couch, sadly looking out of his window with that gunmetal blue light. And you know he's thinking of Shasta. You know he's thinking of Shasta in the moment when she walks in. Isn't that you, Shasta thing? I think it's a similar thing here. You... He gives us this, and upon re-watching, you realize, oh, the only thing he could be thinking right now is he's looking out to the sea. He's thinking of Shasta Fay, and he's wondering where she is. Is she on the Fang? Is she okay? Is she coming back? Am I going to see her again? And you might not consciously feel that, but you you feel it when he... It, it, it suffuses and it fills what remains of this scene with even more longing and sadness. And again, that's why PTA's PTA... And yeah. the rest of us are the rest of us, because he well, knows emotionally how right that is to put that in there. He's even PTA and other great directors aren't. <laughs> they, like, That's true. You know, I, 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 um, like even somebody like Tarantino, like, like Paul Thomas Anderson is unique in that, like he's not only is he a technical like virtuoso as a director, but he's a romantic and humanist. So like he. It's not just uh, like he he knows, um, you know, like Hitchcock knew how to manipulate an audience like Paul Thomas Anderson knows how to use like all the elements of cinema to to make you feel this kind of sadness and longing. It's, it's emotionally, right. emotionally meticulous. Like the, maybe the only other guy that I could compare him to like in that way is Michael Mann, like as far as like having that level of skill and still that awareness of like human emotion and how to how to like make the audience uh feel that like and, i think you're and, i think you're 100 yeah. right i think you're 100 right and also i should probably warn you that uh you've mentioned michael mann so i think a red light is going off on my producer blake's desk uh host of one heat minute he's going to be running through the wall here with like a little blake shaped hole here in any minute now to uh, to start talking to us about man. Hi, you... Blake. What's up, man? <laughs> How you doing? No, but you know, I I but that's I mean, you know, I'm I'm right with you guys. Like I love I love both these directors so much because like there's I mean, not everything has to be you know not everything has to have a through line, but like I do see like some you know um, these are guys that guys that make these kind of sweeping epic movies that um, you know. And humanist um, films, both yeah, of them. Yeah, I think I think yeah, Michael yeah. Mann comes off a little chillier, but I think that yes, ingrained yes. in both of their work, but as more explicitly certainly in in PTA's work, is just an almost cosmic level of humanism yeah. and warmth and empathy. Mm-hmm. And in the uh, the last yep. episode, I know you haven't listened to it yet because you you wanted to save it for after the recording. Uh, but in the last episode with with uh, William Boyle, we talk about the the Demi PTA connection and how there it's like. Demi is almost like PTA's spiritual director father from whom he mm-hmm. inherited this vast because I, I cannot think of a, a director with more empathy and compassion and love for his characters than Jonathan mm-hmm. Demi. And mm-hmm. I think so much of that has flowed into PTA's filmography. And I love that you you connected him to Hitchcock in a way, the way Hitchcock knew how to manipulate an audience. Yeah. It's like Hitchcock knows to show you the bomb under the seat yeah. of the person in the theater so that you know to be tense. It's like, same here. 
PTA knows to show us the lonely walk up the stairs. Don't just give us the emotional sting and surprise us with the postcard, but to show us the sad, lonely man walk up the stairs first, the way Hitchcock knew to show us the bomb under the chair so that we would be just as stressed. Hitchcock was kind of sadistic. This is something different. (laughs) This is an emotional sadism. For For the record, by the way, William Boyle is somebody who does that in his books. You know, that kind of like he does. And that we talk about that. That's one of the reasons he came on is because I wanted to talk to him because I feel like he his this this kind of empathy for Mm -hmm. sometimes real trash human beings. But there's there's still a recognition of them as capital H, capital B human beings, even if they're trash. And I think that's something that happens in this film and all of PTA's film is films is a recognition that they might be garbage people, you know, uh, uh, I don't think that anyone is looking at Daniel Day Lewis in There Will Be Blood and going, "Well, what a what a dynamite fella he is! What a misunderstood guy!" Yeah. We understand him, but I think you still feel capable of feeling sad for him and, and his son for Plainview and his yeah. son because of what happens to him. And that's there's very few directors that I think have that capacity and it be real that it's not something they're doing to shine us on or to manipulate us. Cause I don't think that PT ever wants to manipulate. It's just, he cares so goddamn much about these yeah. people. He's going to do what it takes to make us care the same way or right. as close he's, to as we can. Yeah. He's, he's super emo, but like nothing annoying about it. Um, <laughs> but I, <laughs> That's a, the I, man's heart is on a sleeve. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember like around the time, magnolia came out and he said something like he said jimmy gator like that's the first time i was ever able to judge one of my characters and like this is already his third movie like you know he's like that that's the first time like he you know there are people that did a lot of bad stuff in like boogie nights and and heartache quote you know sydney um but like you know, but he, he, he got all the way to Magnolia before he was like, yeah, all right, well, I can judge this guy, you know, like, <laughs> other than that, he was so like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, so like, it's cool. And again, like another thing with him and Tarantino, like those, these, him and Tarantino are like two guys that like, when they talk about their characters, like their people, it doesn't annoy me. Like normally that's <laughs> annoying as hell. You know what I mean? You're but you like, believe it because, people, because they it. believe it. It's not, an affect, it. it's not an affectation with them. It's they sincere. truly love these characters. Yeah, it's sincere. Yeah. <laughs> and that, like that. that brings us to Postcard, postcard yeah. written by Shasta Faye Hepworth. Now, something that we've been wrestling with on the show for the last several episodes has been this growing thread of an idea that Doc's perception of Shasta might be somewhat skewed in that, you know, the first time you watch the movie and this happened to me or the first billion time I watched a billion times I watched the movie. I'm like, Oh, Doc's just a hero. He's just an unassailable flawless aside from copious drug use, flawless hero. (laughs) The more you start to watch the film, you start to maybe be able to suss out a kind of Mickey Wolfman-esque darkness within him in that in which he just wishes Shasta would conform to his vision of her. And not in a malignant sense, and because I don't think he's ever going to try to betray his hippie ethos of everybody just kind of do your own thing. But I do think there is definitely a, a, a recognition within himself 
that he has that. You know, she you know she even asks him later in the film, like, "What kind of girl do you want, Doc? You want one of those Manson girls? You can tell them, you know, everything." And he's like, "You've been looking at my magazines again." Mm-hmm. And now to, to to broaden that scope a bit, I've I've been thinking about this past week an Esquire piece on PTA that was written in 2008, and it's something I totally had forgotten about until my bright wall dark room buddy Ethan Warren mentioned it this week in his excellent essay on Paul Thomas Anderson's Sydney. Mm. I'm not going to call it Hard Eight. We're going to call it Sydney. Damn it. I did that before. I probably pissed off <laughs> half of film Twitter. Alienated half of film Twitter with that. I trans- feel like I've done that already. So, it, you know, I'm not going to get them back anyway. <laughs> now in that Esquire piece, the writer John Richardson posits that in all of Anderson's movies, people try to reinvent themselves with new identities. One character models himself on a gambler. Another character becomes a porn star. Another one comes up with a nutty scheme to escape his suffocating life through mass purchases of pudding. And then later on, you know, we, we, we seen as a hard scrabble oil man attempts to make himself both godless and a godlike baron. And then you've got Master and Freddy both trying to be more like the other person in the Master. Now, I've seen this enough that I think I can say safely, I don't think Doc ever tries to reinvent himself or be anything other than who he already is in Inherent Vice. But, 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 I wonder if, and here I am, always wondering what the reasons could be for people not liking this movie... Is it that rather than give the arc of reinvention to the main character, this story is more about a man watching a woman reinvent herself increasingly from afar? Because it's Shasta who reinvents herself, who goes from a class beauty at Playa Vista High four years running to this beachside hippie girl in a flower print bikini and a country Joe in the fish t-shirt to a wannabe actress to, in her own words, the bought and sold whore of some scumbag developer. It's mm-hmm. it's always Shasta who changes. It's Shasta who reinvents. And if it's Shasta who changes, then it makes sense that their relationship would end, that she would disappear. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you could even narrow things down. I'm like, here you go. I'm, I'm whipping out that shotgun again, John. Oh, I'm I, I, see, I see you bracing oh, yourself. Bad. In fact, you could narrow things down and chart the souring of the 1960s, not just in their relationship, but just alone in the course of Shasta's adult life. Doc is simply the compromised and reliable witness who wants her to be better in his mind. And we could go even further to say that if Doc's somewhat toxic way of looking at Shasta, just wishing she could stay the bikini girl on the beach, it's a lot like Pynchon and his fellow hippies and their viewing of the 60s. And indeed the way we probably all fetishize our past just be the way just be the way you used to be okay can things like we're doing it tonight talking about bookstores can things just be the way they used to be please the way i liked them and i think that's why the line in the next scene about shasta already being halfway out the door is so important Uh, the moments and times we long for the flaw of inherent vice was already inside them changing them just like the, the 60s they were set to be destroyed long before they even began. And so that is my very long-winded rant about, I wonder if one of the things that threw people about this film is that we basically have a protagonist who has no real arc, Mm. trademark, uh, uh, the Sopranos. What's my arc? 
Right, right, uh, right. <laughs> it's it's that we have a guy who who essentially does not change for two yes. and a half hours, and it's the story of a character whom we barely see in the film, who is the PTA character who reinvents herself. And this is the story of someone just watching that from a distance. Mm. And occasionally we see the different iterations of that character kind of waft into his world and then waft back out. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's my pet theory for today. That's no, it's interesting. It's a, it's a lot to be hit with. And (laughs) I'm not even sure that this, you know, vest is strong enough to withhold the, uh, you know, shotgun. John just ripped off his mic and he's storming off. <laughs> There's nowhere to go. <laughs> but yeah, but, I, um, I I wonder about that. I, I, I wonder if that's something that's alienating. I agree. I mean, that's yeah, that's interesting. That wow. Okay. Yeah. No, but I I mean I do like the 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 part about the toxic view. I do like absolutely. I was already kind of thinking that in just the presentation of the scene. Which we haven't like quite described yet. Like when you see the again, let's dig in. You kind of see him. So he's walking up the stairs, and you're seeing him like not quite through the stairs, but you know, at least the banisters in the way. You don't see a moment where he like sees the the postcard and walks to it. You just see the the postcard. There it is. And there's like a slow pan in in the Johnny Greenwood score. Like there's three or four piano notes and they sound kind of romantic those notes mm-hmm. like they're setting us up and then like the fourth or fifth note goes like kind of sideways and it sounds kind of eerie it's almost Kubrickian in a way yeah I don't want yeah like I don't want to say that it's like ominous but it's definitely not it's not wistful it's heavy it's heavy <laughs> it's, with a capital it's, H yeah, it's like it goes a little to the side and I think like you know these things are kind of like through craft like Paul Thomas Anderson is illustrating exactly kind of what you're talking about, that this isn't like fully, you know, it's not a full, I think Doc probably does love Shasta and he's thinking of her. I think he's absolutely thinking of her. And this is, this is a scene from his subjectivity. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly because you see like her on, on the beach, right? Like that kind of vision of her with her Mm -hmm. narration. And, um, but notice that like the the postcard is kind of like a bright sunny beach day and those scenes it's a little bit her, more ominous than that it, it's overcast in the scenes of her like she's there's one where she kind of crosses it's like a medium shot she's crossing through and then yep. there's that second shot where she's like further away wading into the, the ocean and um you know that's not um crystal blue waters those are kind of it's cold. Uh, it's cold yeah, and it gray. Cold. It's cold. Yeah, it is romantic and like you know, there's the way that her voice kind of quivers when she says "I miss you." Um, oh God. There's um, but there's a. I gotta say something. Like I don't want to be that guy, but like I didn't. I'm a. I'm a. I'm a literalist. Like when I first saw this movie, I thought that Joanna. New- I I just assumed Joanna Newsom was um, a character in the movie who sometimes narrated. I did like it took me to go and read you know all the stuff that's been written about the film the suggestion that she might not be there you know Mm -hmm. and it now that makes me apply that to the scene a little bit because in my notes in bold capitals i wrote notice we never see the back of the postcard in the scene son of a bitch we never see 
Now it's me that's going to have to lean back and digest. I yeah. have never has that has not once in a single of my 8,000 viewings of this film occurred yeah. to me. We never see what Shasta yeah. Faye has written if Shasta Faye's written anything. Yeah. We hear her, we hear her voiceover and as viewers, certainly the first time we watch the movie, we're assuming that this is that's what's on the postcard and we <sighs> see him kind of holding the postcard up to his eye. Yeah. Like literally looking at it with like a little like a little loop. Yeah, 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 that little <laughs> monocle thing or whatever it is. Yeah, but you yeah. never there's never a, a reverse where you see the back of her handwriting. Is I'm not saying that she didn't write it and it's in his head, but I'm. I you know, I'm gonna it. have to go back to the, the you know the postcard. It pops up later in the film when he's talking to Sordelige yeah. or projection of Sordelige, one of the yeah. two. When he's it's in that great scene that I always talk about loving so much when he's talking about the little kid blues and how that's gonna drive him to take on the fang and save Koi. And he he kind of puts it in his mouth and he he kind of waves it up and down. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to go back to see if there is something on there because you're so right that it never occurred to me that that's the only other voiceover we get is 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 that yeah. one and and if if the film if if it hasn't trained us to know that the voiceovers are not real it has at least trained us to view them as suspect yeah. and as coming from a part of doc or as literally coming from a part of doc that, that they they can't we cannot rely upon vo in this film to actually be a concretized human being's voice and not a projection of doc's mind jesus yeah. People are listening to my mind melting real time right now because that is never once. Yeah. Uh, the quote, the big Lebowski. No, that had not occurred to me, Doc. No. Or yeah. not, <laughs> dude. Well, I'm, I'm no great not genius either. I watched the scene like 50 times and then I watched it a dozen more times, like right before we recorded that. So I, that, I noticed that and wrote that in there. Wow. Huge letters. I was like, we got to <laughs> talk about that because like we never see the back of the postcard. Well, you're right, and and that's that, that is such. I think if there's any one thing that I just, that. if there's just any one thing that I had blinders on about this film before starting this show, and one of the things I love about this show in a purely selfish way is that it has allowed me to notice stuff that I've never noticed before, and I never caught this thread of not being a I knew that I couldn't maybe trust Doc as far as sort of liege was concerned that maybe she's not really there but I I I never it never occurred to me that I can't trust Doc's that I can't trust Shasta as I see her as we see her mm -hmm. that I can't trust that this isn't a funky projection of her in some way and you you get that throughout the film as you know as much especially I think in the lead up to the sex scene where she shows up at yeah. Doc's door dressed the way he wanted to remember her. Mm -hmm. She's wearing the the flower print bikini bottoms and the country Joe and the fish t-shirt. Yeah. And her hair is all disheveled again and mm -hmm. looking looking the way she she promised she always would stay. Yeah. Or at least the way Doc believed she promised she would always stay. And the more I've been talking to guests, yeah, it's a it's more and more you can't say that there's a reinvention of Doc, but I do think that you can make out a thin thread of an arc for Doc, which is, I think, a big part of the film is him kind of realizing this about himself and kind of recognizing that just as much as there is this flaw of inherent vice in everything that's going to make things uninsurable, that they... that. The, 
nothing can resist time. It might be bulletproof, like your ability to withstand my pretensions, but you're not impervious to time. Shasta Fey is not impervious to time. There is this rot at the center of things that ever expands ever outward. And for Doc, it's not just time, but it's this idea that 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 you can we can all be touched by the darkness that we think we're standing against that this guy with his hippie ethos and his free love belief system. And this is not a criticism of doc. He's a genuinely good human being. And I do think he's a hero, but he is able to recognize that even he might be touched by the darkness that he's trying to stand against that. Weirdly enough that Shasta Faye kind of acts as a pivot point. And you could even argue that she pushes these two men to cross each other on the street like uh, Master and Freddie Quell. That when she she brings a darkness out of Doc that's yeah. very Wolfman-esque. And yet when she hooks up with Mickey Wolfman, she brings a darkness out of him. He goes to drugs. He starts giving his money away. He starts turning into a hippie for a little bit. I don't know where, what all of this means, John. But it's no. certainly interesting. But yeah, I, I am blown away by the idea that maybe, yeah. just maybe, just, just, just maybe, this postcard isn't doesn't say anything. Maybe it's just a postcard. Yeah. Maybe, maybe there's something else written on it, but maybe it was literally okay. just a postcard. Mm-hmm. Like a hint of, hey, here's where I'm alive, whatever. Right. But yeah, it never occurred to me to think that this is all in Doc's head. That this is something that yeah. he's making up. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And then to take that even one step further... Even if the postcard is real, one of the things that this film does, and I think it was in the master too. Maybe I'm an idiot, but I was one. I, maybe I'm the only one. When master gets the phone call in the movie theater, I thought that was real the first time I saw it. I was like, hey, maybe that's just, they would do that for you in the 1950s. I guess <laughs> they bring you a phone. Yeah. But uh, that's the thing that I think is as time has gone on in PTA's works, he doesn't earmark things. He doesn't underline things. He doesn't let you know. By the way, this is a dream. Or this this is this is a daydream. This is not for real. Mm. And I think that there's a lot of that in this film. It happens whenever we see Sort of Liege, mm-hmm. and you could argue it happens at various points with Shasta Fay. Now I don't think that Shasta Fay is a figment of his imagination, but no. I do think that there are moments of hers in the film where it's hard to know if this is real or not. It's hard to know these these cutaways to her in the ocean, which are kind of frightening, especially when when it, she starts wading into the deep. Yeah, and the water yeah. starts coming up on her and she just kind of holds her hands outward or even the ending or that scene where she walks in dressed exactly as we know doc wants her to dress yeah. and is she dressing that way to fuck with him and to like show him like hey you have a problem or is it because that's how he's just imagining it that happens here too where i don't know if these moments if they've ever existed if they're a cut to what she's doing right now and these are the things she was thinking or if this is just all what well, he just this is another kind of paranoid daydream of Doc's about where she is living it up, missing him because he wants her to miss him. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's like PTA said, you know, who is she fucking? Is she thinking of me? Is, does she miss me? Does she miss me the way I miss her? Is are, These are the things because aren't these the things that, you know, when you're you, you're having a split or a breakup or an argument you want to tell yourself the other person is thinking these things because you're thinking so they god you're gonna feel even more miserable if you find out they're not you want her to miss you 
Yeah. And I, and it's so I I've never read this scene like that, but now that I am, God, I just want to sit down and rewatch it again. Yeah, me too. And it makes me, you know, makes me empathize, you know. With which one? Either both. With that, with Doc, with Doc, mm. because you know, I'm I'm coming at it from the male perspective. You know, there's a there's somebody that I think about, you know, mm. and uh, and you know, didn't didn't work out would have been a good story if it had but it didn't i still think of her when i think of her i think of her as she was then you know two years ago mm-hmm. she's, the, country, she's, the country joe and the fish t-shirt yeah idea like that and she you know um she's she looks totally different now like we're still in touch on social media like it wasn't like it wasn't an angry thing um just she didn't want to go on i still think about it but um, I think about her the way she was, and that's not really fair to her. Like she's, she's had two years of life in between the time we, you know, knew each other and now. And people like I'm not the same person I was, but I still, when I think of her, I think of the person that she was. That's not really fair, you know. And isn't, um, isn't that interesting that, that as time like, goes on and changes you, you yeah, still want everything to stay the same, like in that way, yeah in that way you know and it's not it's and that is like kind of the male you know it's the male you know again like doc doc isn't like a total bastard like but he's that this is kind of i don't know that's what i like i like to think i'm not a total bastard but i do like (laughs) i recognize that's not you know it's not it's not totally seeing this person as a three-dimensional per like i mean i'm seeing her as a three-dimensional person that she was in the past and not you know but there's, it's like, but yeah, there's that part of Doc. It's like, be that three-dimensional version yeah. of Shasta. Yeah. Be that one who doesn't lay uh, a series of facial ingredients upon me that are any more complicated than a pout. Just be <laughs> that Shasta Fay. Don't be this Shasta Fay. Don't be the compli- this more complicated, darker vision of yourself that maybe you always, just like the, the 60s were flawed from the start and doomed to fail... Don't show me that this darkness that is in you now as what you call yourself a bought and sold whore of a scumbag real estate developer. Don't show me that that's always been there. I can't know that that was always there. Because what does that say about me? That I either didn't see it and I was blind to it or that part of me knew that was there and that was part of the attraction. Don't make me think these things. Just be the way I remembered you and the, the way I think of you. Yeah. And again, I don't think there's any malice in Doc's no. intent with this. I do again, I think he's a hero, but I also think it brings a layer of complexity to yeah. Doc that I don't know that people the, to go back to that why don't people like this? I think it's one of those things that's another one of those things that left some people cold because I think you want Doc just to be the affable, loyal dog of a character the funny goofy stoner guy who's just a purely heroic man yes and yet this film doesn't work if you view him through that lens it only works especially scenes like the sex scene and the darkness that kind of surrounds that in that conversation and indeed scenes like this just about anything with shasta Faye, doesn't entirely work on a three-dimensional level unless you're willing to consider Doc in this light. Because then otherwise, when you see that they split up in the opening scene, it's just like, oh, well, yeah, it's just this this mean girl who left because she wanted to be an actress and didn't love Doc enough or something like that. But that if you start to recognize, well, that maybe he was someone who was unwilling to see who she really was and see that 
you know, he knew from the get go she wanted to be an actress and that she was never going to live in Gordita Beach her whole life getting high and looking out at the ocean every night that maybe that there was. And I think that's a big part of what this film is, is recognizing a deeper culpability, a deeper culpability in what happens when we ignore the reality of the term inherent vice, when we ignore the fact that things are going to change and that we can either roll with that and be prepared for that and understand that, or we can be the person who, again, throw something back to the Sopranos just says, remember when? Yeah. And is always just remembering the way things were and never quite able to understand why it couldn't stay that way. And I think doc is in that kind of nether realm where he's in a, he's got one foot in that. Why couldn't it just stayed that way? Mm-hmm. But also, I think there is that growing awareness that I think he comes to by the end of the film when he's driving around in the fog. That growing awareness that they were just as they were all culpable in the death of the '60s, that there there is relationship blood on his hands vis-a-vis mm-hmm. Shasta Faye. That it isn't mm-hmm. that she just left to go find a different karmic thermal because she's she's mean or didn't love him enough because clearly. Well, I was going to say clearly by this postcard, but now, God, I can't trust this postcard. <laughs> Fuck, I can't trust this postcard. Uh, you get the sense that Shasta does love Doc, but that she also recognizes that they can't be together. This don't mean we're back together. And right. I think it's because maybe she, I, I think that she understands more about the relationship than he does. And I think that she recognizes mm-hmm. that, that Doc has that inability to recognize inherent vice and the inherent vice in himself. Boy, you have, you have sent me down a road tonight, John. yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, I'm all like wistful about, you know, lost love and all that. I'm still on that track. But, <laughs> but that, no, but that's like that is, I mean, that's. <laughs> We're getting real again. Yeah. I'm looking out, I'm looking out the window, you know, like, why, why couldn't it be the way I wanted it? But, but, you know, but she saw it, she saw it like the whole thing. And she's like, you know, this guy's a nice guy, but it's not gonna, you know, it's not right for me. And that's okay. You know, different, different karmic thermals. Yeah, absolutely. But, I, you know, <laughs> there is like a little bit, you could read it like, a, like the dick choke thing that we were talking about before. Mm-hmm. Just the say it is, say it is a postcard from her. Right. Mm-hmm. Let's just go with that. The, the way that he's like, um, you know, got his magnifying glass on it. <laughs> and the way is, that he's like in the midst of all this the, seriousness seriousness i love that brief gag of him having yeah. to do that and holding it up to the light as if it's like a counterfeit bill that's going to somehow <laughs> reveal so, you know what i mean and that's like that makes me that's like this the 1970 version of like being in 2020 and like you know I, this girl like made a comment on my instagram post and what it you know like the way that you, like, <laughs> as a guy, you know, I, maybe women do this too. And, uh, <laughs> like the meticulously going over, like yeah. every word choice, and like, like what does she really mean? <laughs> does she want to get back with me? Like, yeah. is she, like, is she missing me? Like, is that what she's trying to like, like great pick or whatever? Like, like is that what she's she's trying to say? Like, <laughs> I, I miss you. I was you. Know, I was wrong. Like that's so like. <laughs> Oh, John, I love how quickly this episode has turned into like a therapy couch for the two of us. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, no, I think you're right. And it's actually something I've thought of before. And it's one of the reasons I love this moment is because I do think that it's what's so great about this movie is you can watch a scene like this. And because of its ambiguities and because PTA refuses to earmark things and specifically tell Mm -hmm. you this is this. 
that you're able to look at a scene like this and have it play on one level, two levels, three levels, or all three at once, and it it, it still works because it's like you yeah. said, I could watch this scene of Doc literally taking like a jeweler's loop to <laughs> this postcard and holding it up to his kitchen light. Like, what 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 does he think he's gonna find? Is there gonna be like right. a invisible ink or or like a watermark or something? Mm-hmm. This is like property of the Golden Fang Industries, right. something of that nature. What is he really thinking? Is, or is he going to find something like, uh, if, if, if she really did write it, is there going to be like a, a curve to her S or the right. way she crosses her teeth to be slightly different? And that's going to be the thing. And the, the joke of the detect using the detective to uh, and the model of a detective with the magnifying glass to just make this silly joke that he's going to find something. But it also has that. That 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 second level that that Doc is just like a stoner weirdo, so he thinks that this is this is gonna work. And then it's other, there's this other level of like you said, it's that kind of obsessive. Again, to use that that phrase that PTA uses, you know, who's she th- who's she with, who's she sleeping with, who's she talking to, is she thinking about me? Is it, and to to the point where you literally take a magnifying glass to a postcard because there's gonna be something in there that you missed. But if you if you were able to suss out why there's this piece of fuzz stuck to the back or why she does or does not use an Oxford comma, that everything will unlock for you then. And all of the answers will come rushing forth along with the peace of mind that you crave. Right. Or the confirmation of the horror that you're afraid of, the, the terror and horror that you're afraid of. But at least now you'll know. And I, I and in that it's a tiny what a, a one second beat, oh, but yeah. that one second beat is like a stack of cards working on so many different levels. And again, that's why yeah. this movie is such a masterwork to me because it is made up of an end. Well, I was gonna say an endless series. It's a two and a half hour series, but it's made up of this endless series of moments like that. That 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 can be a joke out of the side of its mouth, or it can be a heartbroken cry, or it can just be a reference. It's 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 magic. Magic yeah. this movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's I mean it's like I it just like going back to the whole thing about noir in general, like the way that I I'm not I don't I I feel like I'm I don't know if people are uh different kinds of moviegoers than me, but I I'm kind of intuitive. Like I don't follow all the the, the, the beats of the plot of the mystery, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't track like like. Wait. So what does Mickey Wolfman do again? <laughs> you don't have the whiteboard out. Yeah, but you know what I mean. Like I don't. I don't retain details like that. Um, the way that maybe I don't know. Maybe some people do when they watch these movies. I can only speak to my perspective, but like, it kind of feels like it's like hazy. I can generally figure. Okay, so Doc is the guy that's going to solve this, and um, you know, Mickey is the guy who's shasta's new guy and he's looking for you know i get like the general over the overview mm-hmm. but not the whole thing and that kind of like to me that kind of this movie is like almost like a metaphor for that experience like the kind of hazy almost uh, disoriented stoner um you know like like i think i'm following this but i'm not sure you know um <laughs> like i think it's like such a great uh I, and not that it's may or may not be intended that way but like almost a commentary in the whole genre like um like that's certainly the way like a movie like the big sleep which is like notoriously kind of convoluted makes no and, sense makes yeah. no sense this movie actually kind of makes sense like um, i i, didn't feel that way. I, I didn't promise feel that it does way. yeah like i um i found uh, i'm sure you've seen it like the shooting script is online 
Yeah. And um, I was watching the movie and kind of following along with the shooting script. And the only, you know, there are, there are plenty of differences, but like the shooting script, like he actually cut stuff that's a little extra plot stuff. So it, like mm-hmm. it really does actually make sense. I mean, if people out there, people out there still listening, if people out there um, are, um, are wondering if this movie like, you know, if the parts all add up, like they do make sense. It's just when you're, when you're watching it one, two, three, maybe even four or five times, you know, um, you, you, I, I, I can't imagine tracking, you know, <laughs> just tracking it as a viewer, just sitting there passively watching, you know? Well, but, um, I love that you, I love that you call it intuitive because I think that as I feel like post the post Magnolia, PTA has become a far more intuitive filmmaker. And I think he's, he's become more confident in trusting his audience to be equally intuitive and to, to get it in the gut what's going on. Like there might be an idiot in the audience like myself doesn't get the first time that that phone call from master doesn't really happen, that it's a dream, but he trusts you're going to get enough of the vibe that you'll get to the closing credits and be like, well, Jesus Christ, that was a masterpiece that, that, that worked. Um, and so I think you're right that he is an intuitive filmmaker. And I think he made a film about an intuitive man, although maybe not so intuitive when it comes to his relationships, but right. I think the reason the film is structured the way it is, and again, this is another one of those things that probably alienated audiences, yeah. is that unlike, you know, we compared him to Hitchcock earlier, and that, you know, Hitchcock always said he hated suspense movies where you discover the bomb is under the seat at the same time the characters do. He's like, no, 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 let the audience know the bomb is under the seat, and now you got yourself a pot boiler. Now you got people yeah. worried. Now you got people yeah. scared, and that's what's great. And I think most times in most detective films, or in a lot of detective films, the audience is usually a step or two ahead of the detective because they have to be to understand the the plot machinations. Yeah. But this is a film in which I think PTA wants you to be just as confused as Doc is yes. all of the time. And you, yeah. if he can't get you high, if he can't actually hand you a joint, then PTA is going to just make you feel as disoriented as possible and as high as possible. And I think that he very much wants it to be that you discover something the second doc discovers something we are so in his head. And like you pointed out with this message on the postcard, maybe even more in his head than we realize, but this is an entirely subjective film that I think never once announces itself as subjective. It never once says this. Mm-hmm. Is, no, 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 no. This is not objective. This is all POV. Yeah. And I think that can be a little confounding, especially when we're learning of the mystery, because we're only learning it as doc learns of it. We only get a clue when doc gets a clue and almost never with exception with the exception of maybe when he's shooting the shit with bigfoot or he's getting an exposition download from someone like jade or clancy sharlock do we ever actually make connections with doc it's only when those things happen and i think that that can be a little jarring but i think pta trusts that like doc we might not all walk we might not walk away getting it exactly but yeah. we were able to intuit, you know what? The Golden Fang are the bad guys. Time and change sucks, but are inevitable. Glass shatters. Ice melts. Ex-old, or old ladies become ex-old ladies. And that's the inherent vice of life. And, and I think he trusts enough of us. 
if we hang in long enough, that we will intuit that. And then if you want to swing back around with your whiteboard or be like Doc and writing everything on the side of your bar or hosting uh, a monolithic podcast about every single scene in the movie, you're able to go, oh, yeah, this this all links up. This all makes sense. Koi and the Harlingens and, and the Sherlocks and the Wolfmans. And and Doc and Shasta Fay and the Fang and Rudy Blatnoid DDS. It all forms a web that holds this one story, and that makes a lot of sense. But that's the great thing about this movie is you don't have to make sense of it, I think, to get that feel, to get mm-hmm. that empathy, to get that humanity, to get that love, to get that melancholy, to get that sorrow, to get the hilarity. You can almost watch it as a series of skits. Some are funny, some are sad. And just almost on it, like, and I'm not saying this just to hawk this show. Almost on a scene by scene level, you can you can take it in like that and get something from each scene, even if you're not able to walk away going, oh, I I I have, I I totally know what that movie was about. Sure, you don't have to walk away feeling that to enjoy the film. Yeah, well, that I mean that actually goes back to the whole question that you asked me. Like, is could this be a cult film? I mean, in I think cult is a word that usually has negative connotations at this point, but like. If you say a cult is a small, a smaller number of passionate uh, followers or or advocates, right? Like this, you don't make a movie like this because you think it's gonna be like you know, uh, the wedding ringer, <laughs> <laughs> like four quadrants, right? Yeah. Um, I, I I can't. I don't. I'm not even sure if he's made a movie like that. Like maybe boogie nights you know was designed to appeal to a lot of as many people as possible but i think like i think he's a guy that certainly could have gone that way he, he has the talent and ability to to go in any direction he wants to go but i think it's very clear that uh he's 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 made this decision to go down this road of like you know punch drunk love is not um you know that's that's an esoteric movie that's not for everybody it's not going to be for everybody um it's for me it's for you i assume um you know even there will be blood right mm-hmm. um it's certainly the master you know you certainly don't make a movie like phantom thread if you want to like <laughs> get the get the you know the popcorn and, and dreamer crowd like there's, there's nothing wrong with that it's great but it's like that's 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 where he is and it's um I mean, it's a positive kind of cult. Like, we're we're happy to go back to this movie, and certainly, like, I mean, I think I do think of myself as more like I'm I'm certainly drawn to the kind of the crowd pleaser type stuff that I can, you know, get everything the first time. But I remember the first time I saw this movie, and I was like, I'm not sure of everything what I saw, but I know that was great, and I hope to see it again, you know. And um, and I think that's I mean that that that's the most positive definition of cult. It's like yeah. I think a lot of us that are fans of Paul Thomas Anderson's work are like hugely passionate and willing to put in, willing to put in the, the effort to appreciate these things, like to, to, to revisit them, like to, um, you know, I, I, I could probably watch it four or five times and still not follow the plot. And even, <laughs> even like, even when I did the thing, when I went through and read the script and uh, watched it, and felt that I understood everything. Then the next time I watched, I was still confused again. I went back to being confused <laughs> the next time I watched. And like, and, I, and it's exactly what you said. It's like intentionally disorienting. I don't think anybody who has that much of a, a, a you know technical ability, like I, I think, 
I think it's true of a lot more filmmakers than we know. Like, I think like a lot of us, um, uh, you know, even even uh, well-informed critics um, assume that we like we watch a movie once or maybe twice and we think we can can judge the intent. But like, you've got to think like these filmmakers have spent a lot more time with these movies than we have, you know. Like, you know, having been on the production side, like, like there's there are choices that go into this stuff. And I like I like to me, that's always been fascinating. Like a filmmaker, like how many times do they watch that movie while they're making it? And yeah. we watch it once or twice, usually once. And we think, you know, and then we then we hold forth on what we know the movie is about. You know? <laughs> But but there but there but like we're by definition we we've got to be missing a lot a yeah. lot of the time, and um, I just think that's so and certainly a guy like this, like there's no way he makes a movie like this baffling by accident, like where it's what you said is absolutely right like we're supposed to be we're supposed to be kind of with Doc, um, I think I think we probably enjoy the whole experience more than he does. <laughs> you know probably like, probably like it's funny it's it's for example it's funny to watch bigfoot kick the shit out of him like i'm yeah. sure he doesn't enjoy that you know what i mean like like like, like i think the subjectivity of, like we're with doc but i think we enjoy it even more like again like i i don't know i don't follow everything that happens in the movie even when i know what's happening <laughs> but i still enjoy it and um and it's certainly, you know, again, not not a not a mainstream movie by any means, but certainly, um, like this is this is what you prefer. This is what you come back to, you know. Yeah. This is. <laughs> and I I gotta say, gotta say, I think you know you bring up a great point. You know, a filmmaker has watched their film a million times before we we see it once and say anything about it, which is why no one is allowed to say anything negative about Inherent Vice until. They go and host a forty-five episode podcast about it. No one's allowed to have a dissenting opinion until they've watched it as many times as I have and will continue to do. Uh, and also, interesting note when you're talking about, you know, no one makes a movie like this expecting it to be, you know, a four quadrant hit. It's going to start a temple. That I, I I agree with. But you know, it's kind of funny and sweetly endearing in its in how naive it was is that. PTA talks about how he was convinced that Punch Drunk Love was going to be a runaway blockbuster hit. Oh, he wow. okay. he genuinely like there's this great interview with so it's a bit of a it's it's it's, it's a roundtable with Francis Ford Coppola <laughs> and four other directors and PTA was one of them and they're all talking about how they deal with bombs or disappointments and this and this and this. And Coppola mentions that Punch Drunk Love is his favorite PTA film. And they get into it, and then yeah, PTA starts laying it out that he really thought that Punch Drunk Love was going to be a smash romantic comedy hit. That it was going to be huge, and this was going to be his big one. Like his big mainstream runaway. Hmm. And of course it became very much not that. Right. Uh you know, everyone loves it now, but you know, it was yeah. it was by no means it wasn't. I, I think he he didn't say this specific film, but I but I genuinely think he thought it was going to be like his Sleepless in Seattle, wow. that it was going to be yeah. that big, and then the <laughs> fact that it wasn't. And there's something about that level of excitement, but also clearly, 
an inability to realize how odd and esoteric your work might actually be. Uh, I find that so endearing. I find that so endearing of him. Yeah. But I, I think that he's old enough, was old enough at the time of this film's making to know that, yeah, this this couldn't possibly be the film for everybody. Just right. couldn't be. Well, and, the, yeah. and and on that, <laughs> we're, we're, we're winding things up here. <laughs> I, I want to jump ahead with you for a second. Now, normally I, I would ask, as a litmus test type question, I would ask, you know, a guest... Do you think Sword Liege is real or not? But because we're in this very special midsection of the film, doing this very big marquee sequence coming up, we are, which is literally, we're on the cusp. This is episode 24. Episode 25 is the literal halfway point in the film's running time. So we're right. So we're going to yes. do a different type litmus test question for you. And it has to do, appropriately enough, with this, this postcard. And we're going to jump ahead to the next episode. And talk about the flashback to come and its relationship to this very well-timed in the plot postcard that leads Doc to where it leads him. So, the pain of Doc's flashback with he and Shasta running in the rain, looking for a place to score dope during a dry spell. That flashback forces Doc, or drives Doc, to return to that spot. Where the Ouija board will send them, Mm -hmm. only to find instead of that empty lot Mm -hmm. where he and his girl once shared a kiss on a rainy afternoon. Mm -hmm. He only only to find instead the gilded spiraling tower of the Golden (laughs) Fangs, new dental headquarters. So this is awfully convenient. And I think it's convenient on purpose, but I'm not quite sure for what reason. Was the postcard real? And it was a secret message from Shasta, coded in love talk, to help him re- to help him locate and bring down the Golden Fang by discovering this building. Was it simply a note of lovesick regret and his flash to return to this to the scene of that of that moment was simply a moment of coincidental luck on Doc's part? Is the appearance of the Fangs headquarters here where they where they once kissed is it just a brutal brutal metaphor for the sweeping away of their love or like sort of leash <laughs> i got i got i got a lot of thoughts man yeah. or like sort of leash was the postcard quite possibly all a hallucination from some just you know blood kinked cell deprived fold of his brain uh that was really his intuition guiding him to that place telling him to go to that place because there's some there might be something there what's real what's simple hope what is a real memory? What is a fictional story that we tell ourselves to survive? Mm-hmm. Do you have thoughts on, because we thought we were talking about magic earlier. Everything that happens in the book and story inherent vice has a logic to it. It's odd, right. but there's a logic to everything. This is the only kind of magical moment in the film in which there is no concrete explanation for it. Mm. Like even the doper's ESP. Right. It's not true at ESP. You could just say, well, he's a detective and Bigfoot right. is acting really weird. And he took all that all that heroin for what for what reason? Right. I'm going to take yeah. a look at my trunk because something doesn't feel right. This is not that. This is something on another level. This is an yeah. unexplained happenstance where at a very convenient moment in this case, he gets a postcard that makes him think of a place that makes him want to go to that place because he's sad. And there in that place, he finds the crux of power for the entire organization that is fucking everything up. 
for him, his ex-old lady, the Harlingens, an entire generation. How does that happen? Do you have an opinion on that? Yeah. Yeah, What are the, what are the chances of something like that? I don't think it's, I don't think it's bad filmmaking or bad storytelling. I think it has a purpose. I just, I'm very curious as to what that purpose is. I think it's one of the above, but I have no idea which. Just the way I, it's hard to know if Sword of Liege is really real or not. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, uh, I'm sure this must have come up that, that Sword of Liege, it's like a word that means something. It means like, like, literally means like cards that predict the future. Yeah, yeah. My man Blake, episode yeah. one. Yeah, that yeah. Episode, Sorry, yeah. <laughs> How dare you step on his toes? Well, I Blake, I, I, I feel like I, I did the Michael Mann shout out before, so hopefully. Yeah, you, you've earned some, you've earned some, you earned a little some leeway. Um, but, but, um, but I, I, I mean, I, you know, all of a sudden, what, while you were doing that whole wind up, like what popped into my head is the scene in the uh, Magnolia where the, the frogs start raining, and the kid goes, "This really happens." This happens. Like this, ha- yeah. Like this, this, like. Um, this is something that happens. Yeah. This is something that happens. Yeah, sorry, it's been a while. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean that that could be, not every movie should be its own thing, et cetera, whatever. But um, you know, as far as the, a through line, like this seems to be a director that might believe in that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and that's I, I. It certainly wouldn't bother me. Like I, I, I'd like to believe in that kind of stuff. I'd like to believe that I could. Uh, get a note from like a, a former flame that would you know um for whatever reason nudge me on to uh to solve whatever problems lead, are facing me lead you, know? you to the building that allows you to take down the trump administration entirely <laughs> don't get me started please but, yeah. <laughs> this is something that happens this is something that happens that's what i'm saying that's what and that's what you know that's what it might I want to believe in that. I don't know if I'm a person that believes in that. I believe mm-hmm. that Paul Thomas Anderson's a person that believes in that. I do because I think and Magnolia. It's a, it's a it's a movie that makes you believe in that. I always yeah, think of when absolutely. I think of Magnolia. I never think of the Reign of Frogs when I think of Magnolia. I always think of that insane zoom into the painting on uh, Laura Waters's wall, and it's just a. It's I think it was Fiona Apple uh, artwork by her, and there's a. There's a cutout pasted to the bottom of the the painting, and it just says, "But it did happen." Mm-hmm. But yeah. it did happen. But did it? Yeah, that's his. Yeah, I mean, that's his. Um, I'm trying to think of more examples from some of his other movies. I mean, some of them have different ambitions, but I think like. Well, hell, it's the the phone scene in the master. Uh, yeah. The it turns out the master was waiting for him and yeah. and yeah. wanted to see him, but yeah, it was Freddie that dreamt of master calling him yeah and it's one of the reasons why for a minute i didn't realize that that was a dream i was like well master seems pretty cool with this must have been what he must yeah he did he called him no one he he called him so he's pretty cool that's why he's so so down with uh freddie being here and then so oh no wait like this is just a coincidence like this is that they found each other this is a total coincidence Yeah, we all, I mean, we all have those moments where, like, we have a dream about somebody and then they call that day or whatever. We haven't thought sure. about this person in a while. Like, that stuff happens. All of us have stories like that. And I don't know. Like, I want, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm that kind of person that I, I want to believe in that stuff. I, I don't. I come from a scientific background. Like, I kind of, you know, I, I don't really, 
I don't buy into magic, but I wish that I did fully, you know, and, uh, I don't know. Like, I, I, I don't, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I like, I like the kind of more romantic interpretation of this movie. Sure. Like I, I know that well, we, I kind of kicked off the second guessing with the whole, like, is, is that really what she wrote? But I, <laughs> you know, I would like, even that's, to... even that adds a layer of magic to the movie yeah. that, that, Right. For me, anyway, wasn't there before, and now it is because now I have. It, there's a level of mystery to it that wasn't there but before. I, yeah, but I love, I love the idea that that her, like a message from her, made him remember something that gave him the clue. Like that's, that's a beautiful idea that like, your loved ones can help you, in ways that, you know, they don't even know, you know, or oh, or yeah. you can't even expect. Like, um, that's this, so great. This girl, this girl that I was talking about, this lost love, like she, I met her uh, not long after my cousin died, my best friend in the world. Like, you know, I believe like people say stuff, like people come into your life. When people leave your life, people come into your life. They like, yeah. they, 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 they like the world does stuff like that. The universe like does even it out sometimes. Like when, when you're, in so much pain like sometimes you can be reminded that you have capacity to like to care for somebody again and um you know even if it doesn't work out like the fact that it happened at all i still believe that it can happen again at that level you know and Mm -hmm. um that's like that's a beautiful thing about life like this stuff does this stuff does happen like just not as much as we want certainly oh man and what's not magic about that (laughs) <laughs> and it, you know you said uh, yeah i think that's that's there's no better place to walk away from this scene than that i just yeah. want to say that i think you're right you know but that uh you cannot believe in magic but boy oh boy you watch a pta movie and mm-hmm. you, you it makes you want to it makes you yeah. want to love it it makes you want to love the idea the possibility of magic the idea that an ex-old lady can send you a postcard and whatever you take from that postcard, the the message that is either real or implicit or not there at all, that you can take something from that sorrow and make something good of it and do 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 one good thing from that. And that's mm-hmm. that's a kind of magic. Yep. And that's what makes it's what makes this movie magic. It's what makes mm-hmm. all his movies magic. Yeah. It makes that's what makes it magic for us is it makes us wanna wanna believe in that magic and love it. Yeah. That's magic, man. Yeah. John, 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 John. I got to thank you for coming on today. You did my most favorite thing in the world that some guests do, and that is this movie that I have seen so many goddamn times (laughs) that I think think I've got it cracked, I've got it figured out, I've got its code, I've got its number, and then a guest will come on and say, hey, do you ever wonder... And you'll say something that has never occurred to me. And that is a kind of magic to be able uh, to have these conversations about something that I love and to be able to receive someone else's point of view vis-a-vis their life experiences and their heartache and their magic and their happiness and, and what makes them laugh and what they like. You'd be able to see this thing that I've seen so many times through a different set of eyes. Mm-hmm. That's that's magical to me because now every time I watch this movie, there's going to be this added layer 
of magic and mystery to this sequence, which was already pretty magical and mysterious to me. But oh. now it's got this where I'm like, yeah, I, I have no idea who's talking in this scene. I don't know if this is Shasta. <laughs> I don't know if this is Doc. I don't know if this is memory. I don't know if this is hope. I don't know if this is denial. But now it's given me something else to think about when I watch this for the 5,000th and first time. Yep. And that, that is amazing. So I must thank you. <laughs> I must thank you for that. And I got to say, thanks for coming on today. This was a blast. I've really enjoyed it. Before you go, tell everybody where they can find your work. Where they can, where can they find you online? I'm pretty much always at dailygrindhouse.com. Um, yeah, I'm like, I'm shackled to it. <laughs> <laughs> somebody, somebody has to be there. So uh, we keep the, uh, we keep the, the lighthouse on there. Um, yeah, we're on, it's Daily Grindhouse, we're on, uh, the, uh, the Twitter, we're on the, the Instagram, we're on the, uh, what else is there, Facebook, oh god. Wherever Facebook. fine websites are sold. God help us, we're on Facebook, um, <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, we're dailygrindhouse.com, we got some, we always got great stuff, but, um, You very much do, I wholeheartedly you. agree, yeah. and again. Thank you, man, for coming on today. Thanks for talking to me about this very heavy scene. And thank, thank you, you for helping me find <laughs> even more magic in it than I realized. I really, really mean it when I say I appreciate that. Uh, it's my honor. You've had this amazing lineup of guests, and I just, uh, you know. And you've added to it. You have added to it. Don't you be self-deprecating. You've I added to I it. I have to do it a little, you know. I was going <laughs> to finish by screaming, I'm the greatest. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually my line that's how I close out the show oh, thank okay. you well, don't step on my toes yeah don't step but on your line there you go <laughs> <laughs> but on that note thank you for coming on thanks everybody for listening and please join me next time where myself and a very special guest are going to go on a journey through the past whoo thanks for kicking off our journey through the past John it's amazing how all of that can be triggered by a single postcard, a single 4x6 picture with a sad message on its back. Can you ever make sense of it all? Will Doc? Will we? We'll see what we can see next time on Increment Vice.